20 years ago today marks the founding of the Answer Coalition, just three days after the tragic September 11th terror attacks took the lives of nearly 3,000 people in New York City and the Washington, D.C. area. Answer is an acronym that stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. Today, we'll discuss how the U.S. left reacted after September 11th and how a new mass movement came into being. We'll also discuss efforts by right-wing Democrats to thwart a major expansion of social programs. We'll discuss police brutality in Louisiana and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's September 14th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And sign up for our patrons-only seminar with Brian, which will be held next Wednesday, September 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific time. Brian will be speaking about the U.S. war in Afghanistan and the complexities of building an anti-war and socialist movement inside the United States. We'll take questions for him beforehand and live as we go. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, today is the 20th anniversary of the founding of the Answer Coalition. Let's talk about it. Yes, very happy to be able to do that. Um, 20 years ago today, a small number of people, about five or six organizations, and then it turned into 11 organizations, formed what was called the Answer Coalition Steering Committee. And we formed it three days after September 11th. Of course, uh, I lived in New York City. I lived in lower Manhattan, not far from the World Trade Center. Uh, We saw the towers fall. We had friends who were inside as workers. Uh, We were, you know, impacted the way all of New York was. And certainly for those who were in the D.C. area also. I mean, thousands of people died. Uh, doctors and nurses who were our friends uh, set up, you know, headquarters and portable stations waiting for the wounded on September 11th. Uh, they set them up in Lower Manhattan and Brooklyn. You know, doctors and nurses were ready to go, but there were no wounded. Everybody, everybody inside the t- twin towers, except for those who ran out ahead of time, died that day because the buildings collapsed. Hundreds of firefighters, of course raced upstairs into the towers as they're trained to do at a fire uh, while everybody else was trying to come downstairs and hundreds of them died. Uh, New York City was, you know, just chaos. It was bedlam. There was smoke. There were fires. There was soot. It was a terrible, uh, terrible moment. And of course, the shock and the grief and the rage of the people uh, who lost loved ones and everyone really in the community 
that was cynically manipulated by the Bush administration and by George W. Bush, who was an exceptionally unpopular president on September 10th. Uh, one day before, and he had been unpopular since the beginning of his term. As, as a matter of fact, uh, some of us helped organize counter-inaugural protests on January 20th, 2001, the day that Bush was inaugurated, and we had 75,000, maybe 100,000 people far outnumbering Bush supporters at his own inauguration. And, you know, everyone thought at that time that Bush lost the election, which, of course, he had. He lost by a half a million votes. The Supreme Court, by a five to four margin, stopped the counting of votes in Florida. So from the beginning, Bush was considered to be an illegitimate president, an unpopular president. He was somebody who was easy to make fun of as well. But suddenly, he was a wartime president after September 11th, and his approval rating went to 90%. And I was part of, and we were part of a coalition of organizations that were planning um, anti-globalization protests at the IMF and at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. for September 29, 2001, time to coincide with the annual meeting of the IMF and the World Bank. Now, this was important because uh, after the Seattle anti-globalization protests in December 1999, which were massive in character, there was a, a more protests in April uh, 2000, in April 15th, 16th, 17th, right after that, five months later, in Washington, D.C., at the IMF World Bank. And many, many people were, were arrested and brutalized. Uh, I was among the 700 people who were arrested the day before the events started at the IMF that day, April 15th. We were mass arrested, kettled, and then hogtied by the Metropolitan Police Department while we were kept in custody we were leading a demonstration in support of Mumia Abu-Jamal, completely peaceful demonstration on a sidewalk, uh, but we were mass arrested. So this set of protests on September 29, 2001, was going to be the return after those mass arrests and after that brutality. We were going to have big protests at the IMF World Bank, September 29, 2001. And the Partnership for Civil Justice, which is now the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, was one of the... Uh, uh, parts of the anti-globalization movement, the lawyers representing the anti-globalization movement, and PCJ had initiated a lawsuit because at that time, uh, the government was building huge, massive fences all around the IMF, around the World Bank, around the White House, around Lafayette Park, because of our scheduled protests on September 29, 2001. Then the attack happens at the World Trade Center and that coalition that was organizing those protests broke apart. And one group after another within the spokes councils, these were sort of semi-anarchist uh, organizational formations in terms of how the demonstrations were going to be organized. One after another of the spokes councils uh, at a meeting right after September 11th announced that they were not going forward with the September 29th protest. They said, now is not the time to protest. We were making the argument that we had to go forward and organize, but change the focus away from anti-globalization or away from the IMF to make it about war, because war was now coming. War was on the agenda. And people at that meeting here in Washington, D.C., at St. Stephen's Church, 
people who later became fairly well known in the anti-war movement as spokespersons got up and said, if you protest on September 29th, it's the same as dancing on the graves of the people who were killed in the World Trade Center towers or at the Pentagon. You'd be dancing on their graves. Uh, The Answer Coalition was that part of that coalition that stuck together and said, we're going to build a new anti-war movement. We're going forward in spite of this pro-war hysteria. I mean, when I say pro-war hysteria, it's hard to overstate what it was like. On September 29th, in addition to the Answer Coalition, we had a demonstration at Freedom Plaza of 25,000 people. A few blocks away, there was another demonstration organized by some of the anarchist forces who wanted to come out against the war. And that uh, demonstration, which was completely peaceful, completely peaceful, was surrounded by the police, threatened by the police. Some of us were in the streets. And again, Answer had 25,000 people at Freedom Plaza. The National Lawyers Guild D.C. chapter announced that they would provide no legal observers and no legal support for any of the people at either of those two demonstrations on September 29th, not the answer demonstration and not the uh, demonstration organized by anarchist forces that was starting over by the International Monetary Fund. That's how strong the pro-war sentiment was. An organization It wasn't the whole National Lawyers Guild. It was just the D.C. chapter said, we're not going to provide any legal support. Now, that also contributed to fear because people were already a little bit afraid to come out. Again, it was a war hysteria. Nobody knew if the police were going to just crack down on everybody in the aftermath of September 11th. I mean, it was a really difficult time to organize. So you had groups in the anti-globalization movement announcing that if you protest, You're going to be dancing on the graves of the people who died on September 11th. You have the National Lawyers Guild DC chapter saying they won't provide legal support. Then the presidents of liberal arts colleges throughout the East Coast and near Midwest started sending letters to students and their parents telling them, don't go to Washington for the September 29th protest. We can't guarantee your safety. So there was this feeling of extreme trepidation and fear or even perhaps failure to oppose a new war in the aftermath of the September 11th. So it became very complicated and difficult. And yet 25,000 people came out. Ramsey Clark was there speaking. Damu Smith came to Freedom Plaza. Reverend Graylin Hagler, uh, Chuck Kaufman from the Alliance for Global Justice, the Mexico Solidarity Movement. Um, Of course, I'm going to leave people out. Mara Verhayden-Hilliard, the Partnership for Civil Justice. Richard Becker uh, was one of the speakers. It was a three-hour long rally. Uh, 25,000 people came out, and then we marched to the Capitol building. But Nicole, uh, it was rough to get the anti-war movement going, but once we had it, Uh, It kept going. I should add that in addition to the 25,000 who marched in Washington, D.C. that day, this was, again, the first action by the Answer Coalition, 10,000 marched, led by the Answer Coalition in San Francisco, and thousands by the newly formed Answer Coalition in Los Angeles. So in those three cities, the anti-war movement started once again. And we've actually got some, I mean, at this point, it's truly archival footage from C-SPAN, both, we've got a couple of clips of you, Brian. You are acting at that point. I mean, you are a co-founder of the Answer Coalition, as you've said, and you were being interviewed on national TV, on C-SPAN, 
the morning of that rally, September 29th, 2001. We've got a couple clips. Um, why don't you just introduce the first two that we'll play? Well, Nicole, if, if I remember properly, the, two, the first two audio clips, they're pretty short. Uh, they're basically you know, answering the question from the host on C-SPAN. It's the morning show, national uh, show that they televise every morning about why we were coming to Washington, D.C. It was really an interesting interview because I anticipated that we were going to get a lot of grief, not only from the host, which, you know, he turned out to be pretty objective and neutral, but the callers, for the most part, the people who called in and asked questions or made comments, also pretty sympathetic. Anyway, let's hear the first two audio clips. I think we have several, but it gives you a little bit of the historic context. I'll, I'll go ahead and play the first one, and then I'll uh, play the second one right after that. This is Brian Becker on C-SPAN, September 29th, 2001. Brian Becker, good morning. Good morning. Thanks very much for coming in. Sure, glad to be here. Uh, tell me a little bit about the organizations that you're affiliated with. What's ANSWER? ANSWER is a new uh, broad-based anti-war coalition that uh, formed only after the horrific events of September 11th. ANSWER is the acronym for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, and that's our answer. In other words, we're telling the public, we're telling the President, the Congress, that war and racism are not the answer to what happened on September 11th, that they will only lead to an escalating cycle of violence. The thousands who died on September 11th, in my neighborhood, I live in Lower Manhattan, and died here in Washington, those thousands will be the beginning of a great army of dead people unless we act now, unless we stop the insanity of going to a new, what we believe will be a wider war in the Middle East, not simply a surgical operation against a small group of terrorists, but the continuation of a U.S. policy in the Middle East that will lead to uh, oceans of hatred against the United States. And if only uh, people believe the truth, which is that this will lead likely to new retaliation and will not add or increase the security of the people in the United States. Yeah, really, I mean, frankly, really prophetic because so much of that has turned out to be exactly the case. The oceans of hatred really rings true for me uh, when we when we look around the Middle East at this point. But um, I'll go ahead and play clip number two. This is a continuation of that comment. So we're coming together. We're marching in the traditional way that people have always marched to uh, redress the government, assemble, tell the public that we exist, that while there's great support in the polls for the president's policy, that once you get past the polls, once you look at the deeper uh, consequences of what the policy is likely lead to lead to, uh, the American people, a great number of them, and I, we believe a growing number, will be aware that uh, this may make Vietnam uh, come back to us in the most vivid way, an endless war, a limitless war with an undefined enemy and undefined terms of victory. So we're asking the public, we're asking young people, workers, uh, people who live all across the country, and they'll be joining us today in Washington uh, to act now before it's too late. Now, Brian, this third clip, again, from the same interview on C-SPAN, I think is really a really important section because it seems like one of the main, and you can tell me if this is true, but it seems like one of the main talking points of the warmongers at that point was, well, when you look at the polls, 90% of people support, you know, some sort of retaliation or something. Um, and I don't know if you want to address this anymore before I play the clip, but, you know, you really get into how that's just, you know, not, that's that's just warmongering. That's not true. Right. So he, he asks what seems to be like uh, an obvious question. The country actually opposes you. Uh, 90% 
oppose you. So what do you say about that? And this is how I try to respond. What do you make of this piece on the front page of the Washington Post this morning? It's a poll that was done uh, and it talks about, uh, it says public is unyielding in war against terror, nine in 10 back robust military response. How do you react to that? Well, I think if you look at that article, like most of the articles, you have to go past the headline and you have to look a little bit deeper into that poll. When they actually ask the American people, are you willing to have a long, endless war with large numbers of casualties and a long-term commitment that 90% goes down to 46%. And this is only a few weeks after the attack at the World Trade Center in the Pentagon where, of course, there's raw emotion. There are people grieving, there are people mourning, and there are people who are angry. So the Bush administration admits in this article, an, an anonymous Bush aide admits that we don't really know, this is them, the Bush administration, don't really know what the strength of uh, public opinion is because it hasn't been tested. It's one thing to talk about war. It's another thing to actually fight the war. That's what we all learned in Vietnam. Right. And, and what's, what's really interesting when we go back 20 years and, you know, what I'm saying now or what I'm saying then seems so obvious, right? But in fact, you know, it was such a minority opinion. I can't, <laughs> I can't overemphasize this enough. We were basically a minority section of the U.S. left. And I mentioned before in another show that on August 7th, about, you know, just days after that September 29th set of protests, Answer Coalition was in Union Square. At that time, we were planning for another series of national actions on October 27th, which turned out to be the day after the Patriot Act was passed. And we were at a, quote, peace demonstration. We didn't initiate it, but Answer had a contingent at it. And um, we the word came that Afghanistan had been was being invaded at that moment and that bombs, U.S. bombs were dropping on Afghanistan at that moment. And we in the Answer Coalition started chanting, uh, stop the bombing of Afghanistan. And a big part of the crowd, a big part would not chant that chant with us, showing not only ambivalence about the attack on Afghanistan, but perhaps even more the fear of speaking out against a new war this time in Afghanistan. And of course, the Taliban under the Taliban government in Afghanistan had given guest status to Osama bin Laden. So he was there. They, they had denounced the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And the Taliban government said, show us the evidence and we'll turn over Osama bin Laden to a third country for trial, to which George W. Bush said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And they began the bombing. But my point is that even on the left at that time, either ambivalence or fear or both about a new U.S. war. I think there's. I think we had one more clip, uh, Nicole, from 20 years ago on C-SPAN, where I, I'm trying to also answer the question, where's the anti-war movement going to go and what should it do? Yeah, we've got one. He asked you essentially the question we all always get asked, how many people are going to show up at this demonstration? And of course, at this point, you really didn't know at all. Um, but of course, you answered more eloquently than that. Um, this one's just about a minute and uh, I'll play it now. How many people are you expecting at the rally today? And is it, to, to what extent is this an outgrowth of protests that had been planned for now for against the meetings of the World Bank and the IMF? We don't know how many people will come. This is the first national anti-war protest called by our the coalition answer, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. It'll be many thousands of people. Um, it may be 10,000, it may be 20,000. We don't know. 
Uh, at our office last night, young people from Nebraska, New Mexico, Maine, Florida just started pouring in. Uh, we're very heartened by the response. Um, I think the most important thing is that no anti-war protest of this magnitude took place during the Vietnam War until probably 1965, two and a half years after uh, active U.S. military engagement began. So I think even though the polls show strong support for the president, we know there's a residue of peace and anti-war sentiment that was informed by the events in Vietnam and the events afterwards, and that uh, sentiment is manifesting itself in a new peace movement. Brian, how many people did show up that day? So we had 25,000. We were shocked. As I mentioned, there were two actions. So Answer had 25,000 at Freedom Plaza. It shocked the media, too. They were really, really surprised. Uh, And then there was a couple thousand more who were a part of that protest that began at the IMF World Bank and tried to march. By the way, the police um, kettled them. They well, they actually were able to negotiate a way out of that. Uh, uh, that's another story for another time. But total between somewhere between 25, 28,000 people in Washington. But again, this was 18 days after September 11th. And uh, we were really pushing against the headwinds. So we really felt validated. We felt that we had accomplished our main goal, which was to get started, to show other people in the left, in the progressive movement, all is not lost. We can start to organize, even if it's hard at first, uh, the tide will turn. And within a few months, within a few months, the tide started to turn very dramatically. And then on February 5th, 2002, six days after Bush announced that North Korea, Iran, and Iraq constituted an axis of evil and was basically threatening to go to war against all of them, and we all knew war was coming with Iraq, we had a a demonstration at the World Economic Forum in New York City that was 5,000 people on April 20th, 2002. Another split happened in the anti-war movement. This was three weeks after the Israeli invasion of the West Bank, the re-invasion after the 1967 invasion, the reinvasion and the massacre at Janine and terrible crimes committed against Palestinians in the West Bank. And we had this another peace movement, United Peace Movement going forward on April 20th, 2002. And Answer insisted that the focus be on Palestine and in support of the Palestinian people. And the other group decided to have a different demonstration. The other organizations that didn't want to focus on Palestine or even mention it really, they they were down at the Washington Monument. We were on the ellipse. So four blocks apart, we had two different national anti-war marches. But we had 75,000, 80,000 people at a pro-Palestine demo, which had never, nothing like that had ever been seen before in the United States. And that sort of broke the taboo on Palestine. And then in September, right after Labor Day, Andrew Card, as he later explained, he was George W. Bush's chief of staff. The Bush administration started rolling out the case for an invasion of Iraq. And Andrew Card said right after Labor Day, he said, well, you never roll out a new product during the summer. You wait till after Labor Day. I mean, he actually said this on one of the talk shows. And we were like, okay, everybody, we have to start organizing against the war in Iraq. And I was at a meeting down at uh, with Barbara Lee, and I think Dennis Kucinich was there, and perhaps John Conyers, and several other progressive Congress people down on the Hill and they, all the Congress people came in and said, calls are running 300 to 1 to our office against any new war, especially a war against Iraq. 
So we went around to all the traditional peace groups. We said, let's form a united front. Let's have a massive demonstration. We had already planned a demonstration for October 26, 2002. It was going to be locally coordinated protests around the country. But we said, no, let's have one big mass march in Washington, D.C. And again, most of the people in the peace movement at that time said, this is not the time to go into the streets. That'll make us look weak. And when we have Congress getting this kind of response from their constituents, let's focus on Congress. But of course, what happened is Congress passed the authorization of military forces. Uh, that was in October 2002. We, Answer Coalition, went forward with a demonstration right next to the Vietnam War Memorial at Constitution Gardens. And we got 200,000 people to come to this demonstration. And that really inaugurated uh, the beginning of a massive protest movement that was truly global. In England, the Stop the War Coalition was organizing like huge amounts of people, like in the hundreds of thousands. In Cairo, Egypt, throughout the Arab world, everywhere mass protests started. And then on January 18th, Answer Coalition had its biggest protest, and that was on the mall. We had 500,000 people, the largest anti-war demonstration since the end of the Vietnam War, January 18th, 2003. On February 15th, 2003, there were demonstrations in every country in the world, in the United States, in hundreds of cities, big and small. The New York Times estimated that as many as 10 million people participated in an anti-war protest that day on February 15, 2003. And the New York Times editorial at that time called the anti-war movement, the global grassroots anti-war movement, the second superpower in the world. All of this was the run-up in how things were really playing out in that year and a half between September 11th and the March 19, 2003 invasion of Iraq. We've also got a really excellent clip from the speaker you mentioned, Mara Hayden Hilliard, who's one of the co-founders of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, then just Partnership for Civil Justice. Um, and she, this was her speaking at this precise rally, September 29th, 2001. We face hurdles that have to do with a climate and a climate of fear and a climate that tells us that we can't speak anymore. We have a president that says, if you disagree with my policies, you're either with us or you're a terrorist. We're not terrorists because we question the policies of this government. We're not terrorists because we think there are other options. We're not terrorists because we fight for peace. We're not terrorists because we don't believe that the government should racially profile people. We're not terrorists because we will not let our civil liberties go. I know that many people, even our friends, have said it's not a time to demonstrate and it's not a time to speak and that we should be quiet. And that that's wrong. This is a time to speak. It is the most important time to speak. We can't let there be any more deaths. It's just so fascinating, really listening to the voices at the moment. These are all, you know, these things are all happening. This really world changing events that, that were happening at the time. We've also got an audio clip from Barbara Lee at the time about the authorization for the use of military force that you were just talking about, Brian. September 11th changed the world. Our country is in a state of mourning. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment. Let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today. 
so that this does not spiral out of control. The authorization to use military force has been used over 41 times in about 19 countries, not related at all to 9-11. It's also been used for domestic spying in the United States. It's been used in Somalia, Yemen, you name it. It's been used all over the world as the basis to use force and to bomb and engage in military operations. That is unconstitutional. It set the stage for perpetual war. You know, I mentioned that Answer Coalition formed on September 14th, three days afterwards. Something else happened on September 14th, and that was the U.S. House of Representatives did vote 420 to 1 on a resolution that authorized the use of all necessary and appropriate force against any country involved in the attacks on 9-11. So that one, that one lonely vote was Barbara Lee. I mean, that took so much courage to stand up. Esther, you know, while the anti-war movement was sort of ripped apart, undecided, only parts of it were going forward, there was a reign of fear and terror directed against Muslims in America, against Arabs in America, against South Asian people. Mm -hmm. And of course, as a consequence of America's white supremacy, uh, that sort of overlapped for people of color in any community, in fact. But let's just help the audience, especially those who weren't like right there or maybe not adults at that time who might not have that awareness about what actually happened to the Muslim community in America. Yeah, I was listening to uh, the comments by Mara Verhayden Hilliard at the rally and also listening to what Barbara Lee had to say. And I should say that that clip comes from a Netflix documentary playing now called Turning Point 9-11 and the War on Terror. And she talked, you know, there's this clip of her speaking in, in Congress when she gave that one lone vote against this authorization for the use of military force. And then she's speaking now, 20 years later, giving us the real deal on how this AUMF has been used to, I think she said, 41 different attacks uh, since then. And, you know, this is an involving Al-Qaeda. And so I think it's really important to remember that the U.S. used 9-11 as an excuse to ramp up this so-called war on terror. And as we've discussed already on the show in recent weeks to execute that project for a new American century plan to wage war in seven countries in the Middle East, which, as we know, is still ongoing and already involves millions dead, war crimes, torture, and the evisceration of these like sovereign states, sovereign countries that did not attack us on 9-11. But at home, the fallout, we have to remember, was also the ramping up of the secret police that's what they really were. The surveillance state just six weeks after 9-11 was the passage of the so-called Patriot Act, which vastly expanded the government's authority to spy on us here at home, while at the same time reducing the checks and balances on the government to do this spying and violate our civil liberties, our human rights, and the constitutional rights. There was an immediate equating of all Muslims with terrorism, and terror was unleashed here on vast swaths of the population. Americans weren't used to the type of destruction and terror that we have rained down on other countries happening here at home. So this was a time when there was like literal hysteria, I think is the word you used earlier in the country, that tightly knitted together a, a type of patriotism, jingoism, nationalism, which is really white nationalism and Islamophobia, 
on the street level, just as we are witnessing now this rise in attacks on Asians and Pacific Islanders because of the China bashing that was ramped up under Trump. After 9-11, there were increased attacks on Muslims, mosques, and anybody assumed by the average American to be Muslim, and uh, including Sikhs wearing turbans, and we know that they are not Muslims. Muslim women were dressing modestly and covering their heads were attacked. Um, the photos of the, I, w- I always thought it was interesting that the photos of the 19 hijackers plastered in corporate media and the photo of Zacharias Masawi, one of the men theorized to be the 20th hijacker who didn't make it aboard one of the planes, were all like bl- black and brown men. You know, in the way that we color code people in the United States, we could easily call these men African-American, Latinx, or Asian men. And many American men that we now describe of as uh, like a person of color with a beard, you know, could be targeted as a Muslim or like a Taliban or Al-Qaeda, you know, these types of attacks on the street. Now, on the state level, hundreds of Muslims were arrested and held without charge. The Associated Press reported in 2015 that 760 Muslims or suspected Muslims were swept up across the United States, including 491 people in the New York area alone. And these people were locked up and abused for months at a time. And these facts were brought out in a lawsuit that was only allowed to proceed six years ago in 2015, 14 years after 9-11. And so this lawsuit was important because It named former top officials, including then-Attorney General John Ashcroft and FBI Director Robert Mueller. And this AP article is so revealing that, you know, about what it was like during those days that I want to just read a little bit from it. It says that some of these detainees were held an average of three to eight months in New York, with about 80 housed at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn and the rest at the Passaic County Jail in Patterson, New Jersey. The court described evidence showing detainees' abuse, including slamming them into walls, bending or twisting their arms and hands, wrists and fingers, stepping on their leg restraints, leaving them handcuffed or shackled in their cells, and assaulting their religion or making humiliating sexual comments during strip searches. One detainee came to the FBI's attention when his landlord called the agency and reported that, quote, she rented an apartment in her home to several Middle Eastern men, and she would feel awful if her tenants were involved in terrorism and she didn't call, the appeals court said. Another was arrested after the FBI received a tip that a small grocery store where he worked was overstaffed, arousing his suspicions about the Middle Eastern men who worked there, the judges noted. Yet another told his lawyers that when he had complained to FBI agents that guards were abusing him, the agents, quote, stated that it was because he was a Muslim, end quote. So according to this AP article, there were some settlements and other arrangements, which by 2015 had reduced the number of plaintiffs to eight, including six Muslims, a Hindu, and a Buddhist. And this can tell, this shows you how it wasn't just Muslims targeted, right? And the article said that all were of Middle Eastern, North African, or South Asian origin, and each was deported after being cleared of any connection to terrorism. And so finally, there were other ways that the state terror unleashed here at home merged with this mob mentality. The most egregious was how 10 years ago, well, it may not be the most egregious, but 10 years ago, after 9-11, a plan for an Islamic center called the Cordoba House 
for art, peace, and you know, interreligious dialogue similar to the YMCA was planned for several blocks from where the World Trade Center had stood. And it was scuttled by a really disgusting campaign of Islamophobia rhetoric by politicians like Newt Gingrich, John Bolton, Rudy Giuliani. At that point, he was former New York City mayor. And, you know, Fox News really beat the drum, you know, I think dubbing the project the Ground Zero Mosque. And when it was nowhere, you know, several blocks from where Ground Zero was, and, you know, there were streams of video, you know, even featuring survivors of 9-11, you know, condemning this Islamic center. And at the same time, there were two other things that I think people might remember. There was the systemic targeting of Muslims, and there were two cases that people might remember, the Holy Land Foundation Five. Um, as Truthout describes the case, in July 2004, federal agents raided the homes of five Palestinian American families, arresting the fathers who had been leaders of a Texas-based charity called the Holy Land Foundation. Until 9-11, this group was the largest Muslim charity in the United States. But in December 2001, and this is three months after 9-11, the federal government shuttered the organization and seized its assets. And the first trial of the five men, you know, was held in 2007, and it ended in a hung jury. The second trial was marked by highly questionable procedures, including the admission of testimony from anonymous Israeli security agents. And it resulted in a lengthy sentence for the men for, quote unquote, supporting terrorism by donating to charities in Palestine that the U.S. government itself had long worked with. And the men remain in prison. Author Miko Pellet uh, wrote about this case in his book, and he writes, Quote, all funds raised by the charity had gone to humanitarian aid and the government had found no illegal financial transactions by HLF. Prosecutors relied on Executive Order 12947 issued by President Clinton, which prohibits financial transactions with any specially designated organizations. And by the time HLF was shut down, the Palestinian Islamic resistance movement known as Hamas was one of these organizations. And so the prosecution's theory was that by supporting the needy Palestinians, HLF had freed up Hamas's own assets to fund terrorist attacks. And that if Palestinians knew HLF would provide support for their families, if assistance became necessary, they would be more likely to become suicide bombers. End quote. And that's from Miko Pellet's book. So you see how 9-11 was used to commit further crimes against humanity, against Muslims in Palestine, and add fuel to the apartheid state of Israel. And uh, just two other cases. Similarly, Sami L. Aryan, a professor in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of South Florida, was fired months after 9-11 because of his support for Palestine and four men. Uh, James Cromedy, Dave Williams, Onta Williams, and Lagore Payen, known as the Newburgh Four, received prison sentences of 25 years for a 2009 terror plot planned by an FBI informant who paid these men who were poor, one was practically illiterate, up to a quarter of a million dollars each to participate in this plot. And the Guardian article I read that I want to cite here says that the Newburgh Four case questions the new ethos of the FBI, which since the terror attacks of 9-11 has focused on preemptive prosecution. 
It also raises serious questions as to how the FBI has treated Muslim communities in America who it says are a key ally in fighting terrorism, and yet they are subjected to these types of terrorist tactics and surveillance here at home. I want to I just mention how bad this was. I mean, I, I was able to meet the defendants in the Holy Land Foundation case after their first trial and before their second trial. So along with other people, I went there to Texas. I was speaking at political meetings that were trying to you know, broaden the political support for them. Uh, they're completely innocent people. As you mentioned, Esther, they were funding hospitals in Gaza, but then Gaza became, the government in Gaza became led by Hamas, and Hamas, even though it's a, the elected government of Gaza, because the U.S. put a Hamas on the terrorist list, the argument of the prosecutor was that by funding hospitals and providing medicines to Palestinians in Gaza, it freed, as you mentioned, Hamas up to carry out armed struggle. That's how ridiculous these charges are. And those guys, the two top people, they're sentenced to 65 years in prison. All of them, the smallest sentence was 15 to 20 years. Sami Al-Aryan, who I knew and was speaking with at conferences and at demonstrations before his arrest, he was, as you mentioned, a professor from Florida. He had been invited twice, both by the Clinton administration and the Bush administration, the earlier Bush administration, to to, uh, be at the White House for White House gatherings. He was like a very well-known guy, but he had a contentious interview with Bill O'Reilly on the O'Reilly factor following the September 11th attacks. And his tenure at University of South Florida became the focus of like a public attack. Then on February 2003, he was indicted on 17 counts under the Patriot Act. And a jury acquitted him on eight counts and deadlocked in the remaining nine counts. So then he struck a plea bargain and admitted to one of the smaller charges just to have the thing dropped. He was in prison. He was in solitary confinement for five years or six years. He was then given house arrest, which sounds better and, of course, is better than prison. But if you're living in a small apartment, which he was in Arlington, Virginia, not far from here, and for six years you can't step outside that small apartment, you know, it's not exactly freedom. Then he was finally uh, released from all of his sentences and deported to Turkey in 2015. This happened not only to the Holy Land Foundation Five, not only to Sami al-Aryan, but so many organizers and activists at the mosques. The New York Police Department had what was called the NYPD Muslim Surveillance Program, also known as its Intelligence Program. And that began in 2002. It was huge. I mean, it was funded in the tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. It singled out Muslim religious and community leaders, mosques, student associations, organizations, businesses, individuals that carried out pervasive surveillance. It was completely discriminatory. It hired people or bribed people or coerced people to be informants in every mosque. And their job was just to come up with something. I mean, that's what was happening all over the country to the Muslim community. So we took our name, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, because every war drive has a, especially an American war drive, has a racist component. But this was explicit. And the other thing is that by 2001, the government had been called out so much 
for the racial profiling of black people in America, you know, driving while black, for instance, and all the other racial profiling that formally and officially governments, local, state, and the federal government was like saying, "Mm, we can't racially profile people, even though, of course, they still did. But after 2001, racial profiling became sort of legitimized. It became normalized. And if you were a Muslim, that meant you were under suspicion. And, you know, the racial profiling thus came back into full force. And again, with some degree of popular support uh, as a consequence of all of the fear that was generated, the fear and racism that was generated by the capitalist media and the government. And you can see how, you know, Trump even used the residue of that same type of jingoism, racism to launch his presidential campaign in 2016. And we're still living with that. And I just, I also wanted to say when you were talking about all these resources being put into policing, surveillance, and what I call the the secret police state that was happening, you know, there was no attention being given to the health effects. And, you know, there were thousands if not millions of people impacted by the fallout from the World Trade Center being uh, demolished and the the explosions there, the attacks on the, the World Trade Center. And even now, 20 years later, these issues still aren't resolved. And you have so many people impacted by that. And you had the EPA at the time, the Environmental Protection Agency, doing the dirty work of covering up the true impact and health consequences for people, just as the COVID-19 was mishandled starting last year, that the government was more interested in profits and getting people back to work, getting Wall Street back up and running, and then in addressing the serious health impacts on people. Uh, so I think those are really important points. And I wanted to add, too, about the, the racial profiling conversation that Terry Albury is one of the main people who's actually served any prison time, who's faced any consequences. He was a whistleblower from the FBI, a 17-year veteran of the FBI who was a black agent in the Minneapolis field office and leaked documents essentially showing that this was happening, that the FBI was targeting Muslim communities, was targeting religious communities, was targeting ethnic minorities specifically and, you know, surveilling them and arresting them and interrogating them. And, you know, he was the main person who served any time for this. He was sentenced to four years in prison. I mean, it's exactly what you're talking about when that's happening, Esther. And meanwhile, all the people who were living in Manhattan at the time, the first responders who went up into the towers, you know, anybody who was affected by the thick, thick layers of dust you know, in their lungs are now getting lung cancer, um, are getting lots of different types of cancers and illnesses. And, you know, they've had to fight every minute uh, to get any kind of healthcare coverage. Yeah, I mean, just to add to this point about the resources that were poured into the expansion of the of the police state in the United States, the FBI's budget in 2001 was $3.3 billion. By the time 2003 came along, that had been increased by about 30% to $4.3 billion. And then by 2005, the FBI had a $5.6 billion budget. And by 2008, the FBI had a $6.6 billion budget. So, I mean, they they more than doubled the allocation to this infamous instrument of political repression, racist repression in the United States uh, over the course of seven years. Uh, this is, you know, no other government agency 
receives an expansion of funding like that. I mean, that that rate of increase is unprecedented, uh, I believe, in, even for the military. Uh, and then in addition to all of this extra money that the FBI got, which they used to access the latest state-of-the-art technology to spy on people, they, they received additional legal authorities to spy on people through, uh, well, a number of things, but sort of uh, perhaps most notably the Patriot Act, which allowed them to dramatically expand the use of warrantless wiretapping. They were able to receive authorization to spy on people much, much more easily. They were able to spy on things like what books you were taking out of the library. I mean, that that really happened. You know, people would get called by the FBI to, to explain why they were taking out certain books from their local public library. So, And just to jump in, Walter, it also became a, a, a major criminal offense for librarians to reveal that the FBI was finding out what you were reading. I mean, that's how comprehensive the Patriot Act bill was. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the, the FBI was able to present themselves as, you know, the, this great, you know, the, the saviors of the American people against the quote-unquote terrorist menace, in large part because of these of these bogus entrapment cases that, that Esther was talking about, you know, where they would essentially set up a terrorist plot themselves, a hypothetical terrorist plot, entrap people who they meet who are especially vulnerable uh, and who, you know, their informants knew, uh, and and then presented to the public like, oh, we just foiled this terrorist plot. But, you know, beyond the headlines, you, you really have to dig in to find in the corporate media coverage, at least. You really had to sort of dig down to find out that, oh, wait, this whole plot that the FBI supposedly saved the public from was actually an invention of the FBI or an FBI informant. And this was used for as, as justification for the constant expansion of the material resources at their disposal and their ability to use it. And and who was the FBI led by? Under whose leadership did all of this happen? James Comey. No. No. It was Robert Comey? Mueller. Oh, Robert it was Mueller. Mueller. It was Mueller. It was Mueller. Sorry. The Democratic <laughs> Party's, you know, savior, quote unquote, who everyone turned to during the Russiagate investigation, when in fact, he's not a progressive. He's not a liberal. He's somebody who terrorized people, terrorized people for their religion and their nationality. I mean, incredibly disgusting. And so rarely, you know, do any even news outlets really talk about his real, a true history. I think, I think Walter should get like an exemption though, for even though he was wrong, because speaking of drones, uh, James Comey certainly is, um, you know, oh no, that's a clone, not a drone. James Comey is <laughs> well, well. I, I should have I should have known that I should have known that because James Comey couldn't have been the FBI director then because a ten year term limit was imposed on FBI directors after J Edgar Hoover died because he led the FBI for like about fifty years and accumulated more power than you know he was terrifying uh, even to the to the ruling class he was like this yes indeed his incumbency in the FBI as FBI director was similar to the incumbency of many, many U.S. senators and Congress people. Um, I want to go on to another story that's not unrelated, and that's the U.S. ending, the ending of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. We talked about it last week, a parting shot to the people of Afghanistan, the people of Kabul. The U.S. carried out a drone strike that killed an entire family, nine people. And the first stories in the media, dutifully echoed in the capitalist media, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, you name it, was that the drone strike was at 
effort to uh, take out an, another ISIS suicide bomber. Certainly, it was considered to be really a good thing. Then, you know, drip, 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 evidence started coming out that maybe a family had been hit, but then the story turned into the, well, the ISIS car bomber was right next door. So it was the proximity of this family, this sad collateral damage story where these nine people, including several children under the age of five, were blown to bits as a parting shot from the U.S. Well, here's the story now, everybody. Again, and it's only coming out. I mean, some people in the movement or whatever are making sort of weird theories about why it's coming out now. The reason it's coming out is that all eyes were focused on Kabul because of what was going on at the airport and because of the suicide bombing at the airport, you know, the focus was on what was going on in Kabul. Most of the fighting in Afghanistan was not in Kabul. It was in, you know, smaller areas. It was not in the biggest cities. 70% of the people of Afghanistan who suffered the biggest part of the U.S. war drive, they live outside the cities. They live in rural areas. But here's the story. New York Times Times investigation, colon, this is the headline. In U.S. drone strike, evidence suggests no ISIS bomb. Subtitle, U.S. officials said a Reaper drone followed a car for hours and then fired based on evidence it was carrying explosives, but in-depth video analysis and interviews at the site cast out on that account. Now, I'm going to read a couple of sentences to you because it's amazing. It was the last known missile fired by the U.S. in the 20-year war in Afghanistan, and the military called it a righteous strike, close quote. A drone attack after hours of surveillance on August 29th against a vehicle that American officials thought contained an ISIS bomb and posed an imminent threat to troops at Kabul's airport. But a New York Times investigation of video evidence, along with interviews with more than a dozen of the driver's co-workers and family members in Kabul, raises doubts about the U.S. version of events, including whether explosives were present in the vehicle. Well, actually, there's no doubts. Whether the driver had a connection to ISIS and whether there was a second explosion after the missile struck the car. That was another part of the Pentagon's made-up story later. Military officials said they did not know the identity of the car's driver when the drone was fired. So they bombed him not knowing who he was, but deemed him suspicious because of how they interpreted his activities that day, saying that he possibly visited an ISIS safe house and at one point loaded what they thought could be explosives in the car. Times reporting has identified the driver as Zamari Ahmadi, a longtime worker for a U.S. aid group. The evidence suggests that his travels that day actually involved transporting colleagues to and from work and an analysis of video feed showed that what the military may have seen was Mr. Ahmadi and a colleague loading canisters of water into his trunk to bring home to his family. Wow. I mean, it's so emblematic of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. But the logic here is that even though this story is now out, now, because there was a bright light shown on Kabul and you couldn't kind of avoid the story, it's still a ho-hum story. Because if the whole family had been an American family, then it would be a political you know, liability for the politicians. Or if it had just been nine more Marines, 
then Biden would have been scorched by his opponents in the media or by the Republicans. Uh, he would have been scorched. But if it's just Afghans dying, even if it's a whole family, there's no political price to be paid. So, you know, the logic of these war crimes comes from the criminal war itself, where American casualties matter and Afghan casualties don't matter. So the logic is kill first, ask questions later, or if it's out of sight, if it wasn't in Kabul, ask questions never. I think the most disgusting bit of that that you just read, they didn't even know the identity of the driver. How can it be part of policy that you can press go on something that's going to kill someone without knowing who they are. That seems like such a bare, bare, bare minimum that even the U.S. military is not achieving. Yeah. And, and you know, how, how does a drone pilot, you know, thousands of miles away, perhaps, you know, sitting in some office looking at video, how does he know or she know that it's a, a case of water for your kids? and not a potential missile. See, because they don't really know and they can't know. They can't know. But that's what I mean by the logic of war crimes in a criminal war, is that if there is no price to be paid by blowing up that car of an Afghan, and there will be a price to be paid if it's possible that that vehicle had a bomb on it, it's like get out of jail free card for killing the Afghans. And that's why so many Afghans have died. There's another really important component to this, Brian. You actually alerted me to this article. It's in The New Yorker, uh, and it's called The Other Afghan Women. And it's a really compelling, really, really useful article where the author interviews a lot of Afghan women throughout different parts of the country, but especially in the rural areas you were talking about who have been under Taliban rule for a good bit because, you know, the Taliban was already ruling in a lot of a lot of those rural areas. And I, I think it's just so important, especially because it not only gives us a sense of the realities there um, and they're exactly as we've been talking about them, where the U.S. really helped the, you know, fund funded the Mujahideen um, who were essentially who toppled the socialist government where the or the communist government and the communist government had actual rights put in place for women. Women were allowed to go to school. They were allowed to leave the house. And this is, you know, the opposite of what you're hearing in mainstream media, that now things will be so bad. They may well get worse. It sounds like they they will get worse. But the long view of this war is so important. If the U.S. hadn't intervened, we might not be in this place at all. And this article is, I, I really recommend, we'll put the article in the description, but it, I really recommend people reading it. You know, it really lays meat on the bones of, of what's actually happening. It's a long article, but, um, and again, just to reemphasize, it's The Other Afghan Women is the headline, and it's by Anand Gopal. He's an award-winning journalist and author and novelist, but it's a long article, but read this article. Go to The New Yorker, or we'll keep the link, as Nicole mentioned, in the description, but read the article all the way to the end. Don't read it halfway. Read it all the way to the end. It's going to take you a little while, but you'll feel at the end that your knowledge of the Afghan war, the real story, will have grown very dramatically, and you'll everybody who reads this will be happy they read it. You know, we mentioned earlier about the cost of the Afghan war and the Iraq war and the war on terror. Again, go to the Watson Institute, uh, Brown University, one of the Ivy League schools, thus presumably credible. The cost of war, you can use it in a search engine and you'll find it. 
The estimate of the Brown University Watson Institute is about $6.5 trillion have been spent on the war on terror, meaning the invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, etc. Now, 981,000 people, according to that website, have died from direct fighting, and probably a couple million have died from indirect causes you know, that happened during wartime. Refugee status, lack of food, lack of medicine, et cetera, et cetera. But when we think about the economic part of it, people would say, wow, that was $6.7 trillion for what? For what? But the $6.7 trillion actually was very good for some people who got the money. And there's a big business in America called the defense industry and all of the attendant you know, security industry. So they made a killing, literally, but it really did take money out of the pockets of working class and poor people because that's the nature of capitalism. Walter, right now, millions facing eviction. There's big legislation in Congress, some of which is better, but not passing. Uh, anyway, just give us an update. I know you're on top of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're on track for a, a really serious showdown in Congress. And I think it's going to be it's going to be a turning point, a decisive moment for the Biden administration. I mean, are they going to actually deliver anything of substance to the working class in the United States? Um, the Democratic Party, uh, of course, promises a lot on the campaign trail. They usually don't deliver. However, there seems to be a really serious push right now because uh, of an understanding that the deep injustices, the inequalities in society require action or else it might get a whole lot worse for the economic and political elite, the capitalist class in the United States, if they don't offer any concessions. So there is a three and a half trillion dollar budget bill that's under consideration uh, as you know the the first top item of business as Congress returns to session. They'll be fully back in session uh, by September twentieth. Ridiculously, they've been on vacation the last few weeks. So this three and a half trillion dollar budget bill includes things like universal pre-K, finally establishing guaranteed sick leave and parental leave, family leave for workers in the United States. It would make community college free. It would create a permanent program whereby working class parents receive monthly checks for each kid that they have to help make ends meet. There would be major initiatives to combat climate change. It would expand what Medicare covers to vision, hearing, and dental. There may be major immigration reform included in the budget bill that would provide uh, a pathway to citizenship for millions of people who have DACA or uh, TPS status, temporary protected status. And there's also an effort underway to include in that budget bill a nationwide eviction moratorium. The Supreme Court uh, at the end of August cruelly struck down the CDC-ordered eviction moratorium, but that can be reinstated and it could cover the entire country and it can be indefinite if the Democrats want it to be. The reason why all of these different measures are being included in a budget bill is because the Democratic Party leadership in Congress is unwilling to get rid of a completely undemocratic rule called the filibuster. The filibuster requires 60 votes in the Senate, uh, effectively 60 votes in the Senate to pass any measure. 
uh, that gives the Republican Party veto power over all of these progressive measures that so many tens, hundreds of millions of people need so badly. The filibuster is a rule. It's not a law. The Democrats have the vote to get the votes to get rid of it. Uh, it's simply because they have this commitment, this this uh, I think completely ridiculous, wrongheaded commitment to compromise, quote unquote, to bipartisanship, quote unquote, uh, really to to uh, a basic set of decorum with other factions of the ruling class so that there's a, a sense of elite consensus that's developed before any major initiative goes forward. The way that you can get around that procedurally is passing it through budget reconciliation. So this is sort of their one shot, unless they're willing to get rid of the filibuster, which obviously they should do. But if they aren't, this is their one shot to pass substantial progressive reform. And so I think it's going to be a real battle over the coming few weeks as to whether or not these things remain in the budget bill, because right-wing senators like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and other right-wing Democrats in the House of Representatives are vowing to block the most important part of this social program expansion. I think that it's essential that working class people, poor people, anybody who believes in, in basic fairness and social justice mobilize to demand that Congress pass these measures, uh, not water it down, not gut the bill like Joe Manchin says he wants to do. He, he says he wants to cut about at least $2 trillion off of this $3.5 trillion social program budget. That needs to be combated by the people. Uh, and I think that if enough people come out, if there's enough clamor, then uh, these right-wing Democrats, who are supposed to be Democrats after all, which I, I guess means that they're supposed to be liberals, that means that that they would be in a position where they would have to face the, the wrath of you know millions of working class people or allow these concessions to go through. And, and that's, I think, exactly the type of struggle that's necessary. We've got a clip from CNN with Dana Bash where she talks to Senator Joe Manchin and asks him, you know, what he's thinking about supporting in terms of this bill. I'm going to go, go ahead and play it. Democrats in Congress are making a big push this month to send two major priorities to President Biden's desk the bipartisan infrastructure deal, and a massive $3.5 trillion budget filled with progressive priorities. All that hit a roadblock after my next guest called for a, quote, strategic pause on that bill, saying the price was too high. And with the 50-50 Senate, Democrats can't even lose one vote. And West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin joins me now. Senator, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. So let's talk about the op-ed that you wrote. Yeah. You said you cannot support the $3.5 trillion bill until you get, quote, greater clarity on why that amount is necessary. Most of your colleagues have been trying to give you that clarity over the past uh, couple of weeks since you wrote that. Your party leader, Chuck Schumer, says he's moving, quote, full speed ahead with this package. Will he have your vote? And that's fine. He can't. He will not have my vote on 3.5, and Chuck knows that. You know, it's just such a disgusting situation. And when you think to and read any more about Senator Joe Manchin, um, there's a, a really good article in The Intercept called Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire. And it really lays out, you know, where his incentives lie and where... Um, 
you know, where he makes his money. Dan- Daniel uh, Boguslaw is the author. I'll read just a bit from it. For decades, Manchin has profited from a series of coal companies that he founded during the 1980s. His son, Joe Manchin IV, has since assumed leadership roles in the firms, and the senator says his ownership is held in a blind trust. Yet between the time he joined the Senate and today, Manchin has personally grossed more than $4.5 million from these firms, according to financial disclosures. He also holds stock options in Enter Systems Incorporated, the larger of the two firms, and those are valued between $1 and $5 million. And the reason this is important is obviously very clear why it's important on climate issues, but it's important on all issues because, you know, this when you look at the track record of these companies, the Barackville mine in West Virginia is the second largest coal source for one of those companies. They've had five accidents, one death, and more than 30 safety violations since 2000. They've been cited by the EPA for uh, failure to file reports. They violated the Clean Water Act. Um, Another, the, the largest coal source for one of his companies has had more than 40 safety violations since 2000 and two deaths. You know, these are workers. These are workers who are, you know, the people he's supposed to represent in West Virginia who are dying. Um, Grant Town is a is a power plant where all of the coal that Mansion buys from these uh, mines goes. So this is the destination for all this coal. The emissions are associated with an estimated 18 deaths, 169 asthma attacks, and eight heart attacks annually, every year, 18 deaths. And the health damages are worth an estimated $196 million, $675,021, $196 million in 2019. Those are the health damages. So when you talk about funding, when you talk about money, when you talk about, uh, you know, any anything within this broader conversation, you have to look at who Manchin represents. He represents himself. He represents his money. And, you know, he represents coal. And that's what he represents. And he's willing to stand in the way of workers getting the things that they need, which you can see by his own personal work, he's fine with. He's fine with people dying in coal mines. He doesn't want to save those people. He doesn't want to save anything but himself, anything but his money. And that's why it's so wrong to just call him like a conservative or, you know, the moderate. His The, the Manchin family are rich you know, beastly capitalists. That's what they really are. And the idea that you're going to label them as moderates. His daughter, Heather Bresch, she's the uh, former president and CEO of the drug maker uh, Mylan. That's the EpiPen, uh, the auto-injectable device that injects uh, epinephrine into the body and can be, you know, the difference between life or death, especially among kids. When she took over the company, the price was already too high for the EpiPen delivery system. I think it was about $100. She raised it to $600. I mean, that's who these people are. Is that moderate? Is that a moderate thing? Is it a moderate thing to make sure that all of the necessary programs that working class people need? Or is that an extreme position? I have to jump in and say that our our friend, the Reverend William Barber, makes that point very eloquently in a lot of his speeches that I've kind of covered at rallies recently. And the the most recent one was the uh, Make Good Trouble rally that happened here at the Lincoln Memorial in DC. And, you know, that point was made. And, you know, to rousing applause, right? But uh, I think we also have uh, another clip. Well, 
I should say this, that I wanted to agree with Walter about this kind of like converging crises for not only these pieces of legislation, but what it means for the Biden presidency. I mean, he has not uh, been able to get this over the hump with Manchin, but when you look at a lot of the work that activists have been uh, working so hard for during the past year, not only to get you know Biden elected or the Democrats elected, but also for voting rights, for $15 minimum wage, for student debt uh, cancellation, uh, for real movement on the climate catastrophe, which this infrastructure bill was really supposed to address. And and many of those things have been cut out uh, because we know that uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and other progressives, the, w- the way Dana Bash says progressives, you know, and the, she kind of says it in a kind of uh, derogatory way, right? But you know, they were looking for $6 trillion because that was really to climb, to fund a climate core, to really, really make some last stab effort to deal with the climate catastrophe to really show that we were making a commitment. And so the $3.5 trillion is a compromise from that. And for, for Manchin to like fix his mouth to say, you know, Oh, two more trillion has to come off that it's, it's making, you know, it's there, there are a lot of people who are activists on various issues who are just uh, really angry and fed up with the Democratic Party at this point. I think we have a clip from uh, Tamika Mallory, uh, activist Tamika Mallory, uh, speaking at the Make Good Trouble rally. She has an organization, Until Freedom. You keep on lying to us and telling us to work hard, to fight for you, to stand with you. And when it's time for you to be courageous and bold and stand up for us, we can't find you. You wiggle and you waver. We are sick and tired of being sick and tired. We are sick and tired of you coming to us with excuse after excuse. Now the filibuster is in our way. We are sick and tired of our children being targets of police violence while Senator Cory Booker jokes about defunding the police, which might be the only thing that will save our lives. We are sick and tired of having to fight this same fight over and over again for our right to vote. That just gives you a sense of the frustration and anger uh, among activists who have been basically kind of sticking up for the Democrats, you know, went out to campaign for them, uh, got, you know, two Democratic senators in Georgia, you know, all with these promises that things would be different and that with that extra vote in the Senate, they would be able to to make major changes, to get these pieces of legislation like statehood for D.C. across the line. And as you were just discussing, Walter and Nicole, these moves by Joe Manchin are stopping them in their tracks. And I wonder, you know, what that means for the Biden presidency at this point. It just seems like Joe Manchin is right now wielding the power to not only enact this uh, agenda that the progressives have already compromised on, but to just take down the whole presidency. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, what one other thing that that, that clip from Tamika Mallory made me think about was when the uh, when a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage was on the table earlier this year, um, you know, Tamika Mallory was talking about the filibuster and how they can always come up with some procedural excuse 
Um, like I was talking about earlier, the filibuster is just a rule that they could change, that the Democrats could change whenever they wanted. They wouldn't need a single Republican vote to do that. Uh, the way that they killed the $15 an hour minimum wage earlier this year was was something even more obscure. You know, so there was uh, a provision in a budget reconciliation bill, you know, one of these ways to get around the filibuster that would increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And then this obscure official known as the Senate parliamentarian reviewed that provision of the bill and the and and she said that well this doesn't have a material impact this doesn't have a big enough impact on the state of the country's finances and therefore you're not allowed to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour this way and the democrats threw up their hands and they said oh sorry we can't do it the parliamentarian won't let us uh that's it's that's Amazing. nonsense too because they can just decide to ignore the parliamentarian. I mean, the the Democrats uh, who don't want to expand social programs, who don't want to give working class people concessions, will exploit the arcane nature of the U.S. political process, the legislative process, to try to make it seem like their hands are tied. But it's it's always not true. Right. All right. Let's turn to another story, Nicole. I know you're a Virginian, so you have to be overjoyed that Robert E. Lee's statue finally coming down, cut in half, literally. Uh, we want to talk about that. Of course, that's a byproduct of the uprising against racism. But um, the, the problems of racism, the problems of white supremacy, the problems of racist police violence, uh, none of that is going away. But it was a, it was a great relief and a, a source of joy to see Robert E. Lee's statue finally coming down I got to tell you, my friends and family were sharing photos of that all around. Everybody who's still in Richmond was so excited. And from anywhere, you know, anyone who's not in Richmond, so excited. Just such a beautiful symbol of uh, the uprising of the strength of people and of the changes that, you know, every time I drove down Monument Avenue as a kid, all I saw were Confederate monuments. Never, ever, ever thought that those would come down. But the power of people, you know, really made that happen. Really a beautiful day. Oh, by the way, Nicole, uh, while you and your family were happy and anybody who believes in justice would be happy, Donald Trump, Donald Trump was very unhappy. I want to read to all of you and for the listening public what Donald Trump said about the takedown of Robert E. Lee's statue. He's very unhappy. Quote, Robert E. Lee is considered by many generals to be the greatest strategist of them all, Donald Trump wrote. President Lincoln wanted him to command the North, in which case the war would have been over in one day. Robert E. Lee instead chose the other side because of his great love of Virginia. And except for Gettysburg, he would have won the war. He should be remembered as perhaps the greatest unifying force after the war was over. And then get this, get this. This is Donald Trump. If only we had Robert E. Lee to command our troops in Afghanistan, that disaster would have ended in a complete and total victory many, many years ago. What an embarrassment we are suffering because we don't have the genius of a Robert E. Lee. I mean, Robert E. Lee was a slave owner. He was a sadist. Uh, he was a military failure. One quarter of all Confederate troops died and they lost. Uh, the army that you know Robert E. Lee led killed more U.S. soldiers than any other army in the history of the country. All that said, uh, 
Esther, Donald Trump is apparently in love with Robert E. Lee, and, and so are some other people in this country, not small in number. And a lot of the police forces are very unhappy, I'm sure, that Robert E. Lee's statue is coming down. By the way, the Pentagon still hasn't changed the name of, you know, 10 different U.S. military bases, major bases that are also named after Confederate military leaders. Uh, but anyway, we'll come back to that. Let's talk, uh, though, about what's going on in Louisiana. I want to, I think this is such an important story uh, about the Louisiana State Police. Uh, again, it's hard to watch the videos, but let's well, talk about you know, the story. A few weeks ago, we talked about the case of Ronald Green and how back in 2019, he was tasered, stunned, punched, and dragged uh, to his death by Louisiana State Police, who told his family that he was killed in a car accident. But this year, video surfaced about this murder. And what happened last week is that the AP revealed a new investigation um, of about a dozen other cases over the past decade in which the Louisiana State Police troopers or their bosses ignored or concealed evidence of beatings, deflected blame, and then impeded efforts to root out misconduct. And basically, uh, these this investigation was a follow-up to what was was a follow-up to the revelations about Ronald Green. And so there are at least a dozen cases where there are other videos of beatings of people. These are all, these are, are beatings targeting African-American men. And the article says in one video, white troopers can be seen slamming a black man against a police cruiser after finding marijuana in his car, throwing him to the ground and repeatedly punching him all the while he is handcuffed. So this is the type of brutality that these videos are revealing. And uh, this just goes back to the whole, what we were just talking about. You know, even though this is so horrific, you can think of it as another outcome or victory of the uh, uprising against racism last year because it's only because of that struggle that we have increased scrutiny on police departments and the more demand for accountability. At the same time, you know, um, the article points out that uh, civil rights leaders are urging the U.S. Justice Department to launch a broader pattern and practice investigation into not only this state police department in Louisiana, but also that recent similar probes have opened in Minneapolis, uh, Louisville, and Phoenix. So this is a case that we're going to have to continue to watch. Uh, there's a particular unit in this Louisiana State Police organization that uh, is particularly being looked at because it's from the same particular unit that many of these cases are coming from. And it's been known for a long time in Louisiana that these people are really extremely violent and they've been acting with impunity. All right. So I want, before we go to Liberation News, and there's some really important news coming out, breaking news from Liberation News, uh, but before we go there for our final story, 
I want to just mention something that I noticed and saw. It was actually on page 822 of the Washington Post, so it would have been easily missed. Uh, we have to call our friends like Patricia Gorky or Chris Garafa or somebody to help us understand what this means. But I want to read a couple of sentences to you and let, let everybody know how weird this is. A secretive Pentagon program that started on Trump's last day in office just ended. The mystery has not. A Pentagon program that delegated management of a huge swath of the internet to a Florida company in January, just minutes before President Donald Trump left office, has ended as mysteriously as it began with the Defense Department this week retaking control of, get this, 175 million IP addresses. The program had drawn scrutiny because of its unusual timing, starting amid a politically charged changeover of federal power and because of its enormous scale. At its peak, the company Global Resource Systems controlled almost 6% of a section of the internet called IPv4. The IP addresses had been under Pentagon control for decades, who knew, but left unused, despite being potentially worth billions of dollars on the open market. Adding to the mystery, company registration records showed that Global Resource Systems, that's the company, at the time that it got 6% of the internet, 175 million IP addresses turned over to it, the company was only a few months old, having been established in September 2020, and had no publicly reported federal contracts, no obvious public-facing website, and no sign on the shared office space it listed as its physical address in Plantation, Florida. The company also did not respond to requests for comment, and the Pentagon did not announce the program or publicly acknowledge its existence until the Washington Post reported on it in April. Anyway, it's not the end of the story, but what? The Pentagon has 175 million IP addresses that it controlled, and then minutes before Trump left office, it gave it to this all of these 175 million IP addresses to a shell company in Florida. Like we have to, we have to learn about this. Uh, this is too weird. Anyway, Walter, big, big breaking news. Uh, coming out on Liberation News. It'll be on other media too, but let's get started. Yeah, well, well, the main news that I want to draw everybody's attention to is that all of the remaining charges have been dropped against the anti-racist protest leaders in Denver. Uh, we've been covering this case uh, on the socialist program uh, since it since it began, since this political persecution of these activists who were leaders of the struggle for justice for Elijah McClain began. Uh, they were charged with, with dozens of bogus felonies. They were facing decades in prison each. Uh, it was obviously an attempt by the powers that be in Denver, Colorado and Aurora, Colorado to shut down this movement for justice for Elijah McClain, a young black man who is murdered in, 
in horrific, brutal fashion by Aurora police department officers and paramedics. Uh, Those officers have now been charged. I mean, this struggle was victorious in securing an indictment of those people who are responsible for the brutal murder of Elijah McClain. Uh, And now, just a couple weeks after that, the People's Movement has won another victory with a total victory over this political prosecution in Aurora. So you can find out more details uh, at liberationnews.org. Check out the article titled All Charges Dropped Against Denver Anti-Racist Protest Leaders. Walter, Walter, before you go on to the rest of your Liberation News stories, so the defendants are Rush, Russell Roosh, Lillian House, Joel Northam, Eliza Lucero, and Terrence Roberts. They were arrested. They were jailed. They had 69 criminal charges, 30 felonies. They were facing a potential 129 years in prison. Uh, Lillian House was spent uh, facing almost 50 years in prison. Joel Northam, almost as many years. I mean, this was a massive attack, and they won. And the police and the DAs who tried to cover up for the DA, they've been defeated, and now those killer cops. We believe they're killer cops and that that's justice can only find that. Uh, and justice must determine that, uh, they are now indicted a remarkable victory. Anyway, we'll talk more about it next week, but go ahead with the rest of your stories. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Absolutely. Enormous victory there in Aurora, Colorado. Uh, Two other articles that I want to draw people's attention to. Uh, One is titled Public Housing to be Demolished in Tampa, Florida for New Development. This is about a struggle uh, by residents of uh, public housing against the the destruction of their homes uh, in the interest of private profit. Uh, And then I want to also highlight uh, an international article. It's titled Bolsonaro's Coup Threats Rejected by People of Brazil. Uh, Liberation News, we we give you coverage of local issues, people's struggles at the grassroots level, national issues. And this certainly, I think, is a huge international story that the president of Brazil, the pro-fascist far-right monster, Jair Bolsonaro, is essentially... uh, attempting or signaling that he desires to establish a dictatorship of his own. He's a big supporter of the 1964 to 1981 military dictatorship, fascist dictatorship that ruled Brazil. And through attacks on the Supreme Court and other government institutions and the mobilizations of his supporters and sort of Trump January 6th style, he hoped to uh, essentially get rid of democracy in Brazil, but there are major demonstrations by the people, by social movements, trade unions, left-wing political parties to fight back against that. So go to liberationnews.org. It's updated daily, and you can sign up for our newsletter at the top. All right. That's all the time we have for today. We'll be back tomorrow with Professor Richard Wolf. We'll talk about the biggest stories in the economy. We're going to focus tomorrow on quantitative easing and inflation. What is it? We'll talk about it in detail with Professor Wolf. And then on Thursday, we'll have our usual The Real Story with the Socialist Program. So stay with us all this week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
we can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.